it's not really about what does the global audience want, because it's so broad. You have to figure out, like, regionally, you know, what languages are spoken. India has several main languages. There is, like, no national language, right? So it's really trying to understand what are, like, the nuances that are really driving that culture forward. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Today we are talking to Michelle Parsons, who is currently working in product and innovation for the kids and family content on Netflix. Michelle started her career as a teacher and later went on to work for Pearson Education, Kayak, Spotify, and now Netflix. Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Super excited as I was looking through your profile and all the different companies you've grown. I think uh, you have an interesting journey to even going into product. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about how you got into product because it wasn't the most traditional route. Yeah, I think I oftentimes I talk to other product managers or even people who are interested in product. Like you see two journeys, really. One is very traditional. Like I studied product. I was in computer science or statistics. Um, and then another one where it's very random, you kind of fell into products. And that's really my story. So I um, studied science. I was pre-med in college. A bunch of different things led me into the education space. Um, and when I was there, I realized that I really had a knack for trying to solve my students' problems, like using a bunch of data. Um, and it was really at the height of the Common Core and Race to the Top. It was like the end of... Um, what is the Common Core? Yes, the Common Core is actually an initiative that was put in place by the Obama administration. It was really um, in response to the um, No Child Left Behind bill that was put in place by the Bush administration, it was in effect trying to respond to the lack of progress that had been made by the tests that were put in place on a state level. So this was really a national set of standards that were aimed that, that aimed at essentially helping all kids track towards similar standards that can be measured across um, states. And so I was teaching during that era, we were really focused on testing. Um, how do you basically help kids excel through these tests and help them um, understand mastery at different objective levels? So I was using a lot of data, using a lot of Excel trackers, realizing that I, just, I did not have the tools that I needed to actually be productive as a teacher in my classroom. So I ended up making a lot of my own tools. Through that, I just like really loved kind of tinkering, figuring out like what worked, what didn't work, figuring out where I could become better as a teacher for my students. And it was really that that kind of led me into this world of, well, I want to work in technology in education. I just thought that there was like a really big opportunity there for not just me to make an impact and, and broader than my classroom that I was already making, but on like a larger scale. And that was something that was really important to me was scale, right? How do I take me and not just make me effective in the classroom, but also kind of broaden that out a bit. So I ended up working for a company called Pearson Education. And they are a really big education company, right? You know, one of the big, yeah. big ones. They do technology. They also have like books, textbooks, the traditional have, stuff, right? I have bought some of their books, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You spend lots of lots of dollars on those. So I was in a program um, that was a leadership development program. So a rotational program, oh, you know, yeah. typical, typical like type of leadership program. Um, I ended up starting in this incubated startup that they had called Alley 
And the, the, the concept was really simple. It was, how do we basically get kids to study outside of school? Really simple concept, right? Kids love to study and especially use their free time to study. <laughs> what? Right. So <laughs> we, had a oh, really, we had a really hard time with the audience. Um, but what we tried to do is also the height of like the gaming. You know, Farmville was like the number one game on Facebook at the time. Um, and so we tried to use gaming mechanics to incentivize kids to actually go through. We had created these like learning tracks. One, you know, you basically sat and watched a video. You reiterated what you saw like in some type of problem or or lesson and then you got some game and like the more you did this you earned coins and those coins could be used to like circumvent the learning piece and just go to the game so it was really interesting when i got there i was primarily working on the content side of things so really just like kind of building out the objectives the standards and mapping them back to the common core and i realized that i kept on having a ton of like you know, aha moments like, oh, what if we did this? And so I kept on getting um, directed to the product team. At this point, I had no idea what a product team was. Yeah. Um, I had never really even heard that word before. Again, I'm coming from a science background in a lab, wanted to be a doctor. So um, when I finally started talking to our UX, our UX designers, our designers, um, our researchers, I started like really like kind of becoming more and more interested. And so I just wanted to learn more and more. And so they started giving me tasks like, why don't you call um, some of our members and ask them questions? You know, the tasks that maybe like they didn't necessarily want to do anymore. And I was just like really eager to take it on. I was eating it up, um, I really gravitated towards it. And so it was like really that that kind of opened up my eyes into the world of what products could be. Um, and then a year after that, I, I got an opportunity to go work in New York, um, actually building out like a full end-to-end -end system that was digital for everything from like taking notes, taking attendance, testing wow. on on you know on our tablets, et cetera. Um, and that was like my first product management nice. official experience. But it was really interesting, kind of going from the, you know, in the weeds, really, like yeah. where you're working, you're figuring out like who are our users and what do they want. And I think that's really what propelled me into product was the fact that I had just been a teacher two months prior to starting this job. I was just a student two years before that. And so I could really empathize on both sides of the, you know, the fence really of like, what are these people looking for? What do our users want? And actually what are the barriers to get them into this product? Um, and that's really where I started. Very cool. Yeah. And how long did you do the, the education product? Yeah, I was in education for probably four years, four or five years. Um, in various product roles in various parts of the education like funnels. So I did everything from like kindergarten all the way to post-education wow. learning um, at Harvard Business School. It was really interesting. I think the one thing that was really different in the education space than in the consumer space is really the way in which you go about figuring out what you should be building. Yeah. In a direct-to-business, you know, B2B type of thing where you're company, a sales team essentially, is selling a product to another essentially yeah. board of education for a state or, or a college, for example, those two groups are actually really far away from the user and really far away from the people who are building the technology. And you as a product manager or as a designer, your customers in your mind are the teachers and the students. Of course. Not the boards of education yeah. and the salespeople. But they're the ones with the money and the interesting. <laughs> exactly. For me, the biggest difference when I transitioned to the consumer space was that my customer now is actually my customer. Yeah. The problem that I always encountered in the education space was that 
all the features that would actually be beneficial for that teacher or for that student that would really help elevate the product or raise the bar for them, oftentimes ended up getting cut at the very last minute because we were on deadlines, right? We weren't A-B testing on a rolling scale. We basically said, you know, we have a contract. We need to fulfill this contract by end date. Um, and so that was something that over time really started kind of eating at my core of like, I'm in these companies that are very mission driven. Our, our mission is to like help educate, you know, the children of tomorrow, basically, right? Like all these really yeah. like deep missions and we were never actually able to fulfill them in my mind. Um, and so when I got the opportunity to transition over into the consumer space, I didn't have a ton or any consumer experience. I hadn't run a single A-B test in my life. I didn't even know what A-B testing was. You know, our testing was, so interesting. was bringing users into our office, showing them paper prototypes, and then making decisions based on feedback. <laughs> There's definitely a school of thought, I think, these days that it says that like probably change comes from conscious for-profit organizations that are trying to change the world because it's like nonprofit can be very challenging. Sure. So then you made it the, the transition into, into consumer and you've worked from like some really awesome companies from uh, Kayak to Spotify to Netflix today. Tell us a little bit about that transition, the journey, any big lessons you've had from, from any of these, and, and then we'll dive deeper into some of them. But. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest shock to my system was the pace at which you move in companies that are on this like really fast iterative testing cycle versus a really big publisher turned technology company who is really on like deadlines or on semester type of of schedules and so like ab testing was a big thing that i had to learn my background in science kind of helps because you're always like testing off of hypotheses mm -hmm. and I kind of or live my life in that orientation. So um, it was a natural fit for me, but something that I had to learn. So that was one of the big things, just like how do you run a test? How do you construct a test and construct a test that is going to be essentially seen by millions of people? The scales at which I was operating, I think at Kayak is like the smallest scale yeah. to then Spotify and now to Netflix, where you kind of like see the trajectory of the amount of users that you're able to impact and put your ideas in front of. So that was one of the biggest things was just how fast should you run? How fast should you move? And oftentimes I think, especially people who are starting out early, like, oh, I need to have really big tests. I need to have spend a lot of time thinking about the test and presenting the best test out there. The way I really think about it is you don't have to always have the biggest test. You don't have to spend a lot of time making sure it's the, it's the perfect test. I think you just have to ask the right questions and figuring out what you're trying to measure. And a lot of that comes down to really understanding and empathizing with your user to figure out either what are they doing on our site today? What are they coming for? And how are we or are we not meeting that? And how can we do it better? And so really it, it's those like three factors, right? Who's your customer? What are they coming to do? And then what are you trying to facilitate for them? Like what's that end metric you're trying to move and then figuring out what that chain is like. So that's really like the biggest difference from where I started, where it was just like, you have one year to build this thing. You don't get a lot of feedback in, you know, in between to coming to a highly iterative test driven, these test driven environments where you are constantly releasing tests um, into the wild to get feedback real time. As you think about your, your journey between these companies, what are some, I think for, for our audience out there who's thinking about the type of company that you choose as a product manager, what made you choose, make some of the choices you've made with the companies that you've, you've been with? When I'm looking at personal growth as well, yeah. um, as, 
as well as the impact I can make on an organization. The first thing is really for myself is, am I interested in like the industry or the problem space, right? For me, there's many different kinds of product managers out there. I'm one that has to highly empathize with my user base in order to be effective. I know that. And so I gravitate towards industries that I am very that I use a lot, right? So I have the problems, I see the problems, I want to go fix the problems. (laughs) No, but I think that's one thing that really drew me to kayak in the first place is that I'm an avid traveler. I love to go and see the world, go different places and try new things because it helps me as a person grow, my perspective, my understanding of the world and cultures. And so that's what drove me to really go to kayak. And why I left Kayak, I loved my time at Kayak. It was wonderful. Why I ultimately ended up choosing to move to Spotify was really as a product manager, you want to be able to like test yourself as well, right? So Spotify in terms of scale, the amount of people that you were able to impact was in the hundreds of millions versus of tens of millions, right? And so when I was thinking about where I wanted to go with my career, for me, it was really about that scale and that impact. How can I test myself a little bit and challenge myself to think a little bit differently, be pushed into new directions. Um, And I think really that's kind of what influenced both of these changes actually, and now here at Netflix as well. Nice. I love the the concept of like, you also have to test yourself (laughs) and push yourself. I, I think that that's such an interesting concept. So if we dig a little bit through your experiences at Kayak, I thought it was really interesting. You owned cross-platform product roadmap and developer for hotels. Mm -hmm. And you did iOS, Android, and web, which I think is rare. Usually we meet product managers who either own the web or own the app. Tell us a little bit about how it feels to be a cross-platform product manager and why is cross-platform important for brands today? How should they think about cross-platform in relationship with growth? I think you're right. I think it is typical where you kind of own one or the other platform. That's what we see a lot. Um, And in Kayak, we started out like that. So, and primarily driven by the fact that our business at the time when I joined was a primarily desktop business or, you know, it was web-based. People just weren't as comfortable doing transactions online, especially for big purchases like travel. And things where travel, if it goes wrong, it's really bad, right? It's really, when you when, yes. when you get to the airport and your ticket is like purchased for the wrong date or something didn't work out, it ruins not just your day, but your entire vacation. And so I did actually start out on web only. And that was primarily driven again by the fact that our business was on web. But as we started to see shifts in the business, so people becoming more comfortable with purchasing online, um, especially in the hotel space with like the rise of Airbnb and the rise of Hotel Tonight specifically for hotels, we really saw people becoming a lot more comfortable actually executing purchases versus just doing the browse, which is what primarily the mobile device had been for the accommodations and travel space. And so what had happened was that we had just like one team kind of doing mobile small innovations over here while our real you know bread and butter was on web. But we saw really the platforms diverging in a way that wasn't the best experience for the end user, right? And so why I think it's important, and again, it, I think it varies by business. For example, Spotify, primarily a mobile business. So you don't really need to have somebody owning the TV app and and the web app. Like those experiences and use cases are really different. But for something where where your consumer base or your user base is 
flipping between various devices, mm -hmm. you want the experience to be a bit, a bit, you want it to be seamless, exactly. right? You want something that happened on web yeah. to be picked of up course. on mobile. You want to be able to finish a transaction. You want to be able to do browsing here and then purchase on, on web. And so for, for us at Kayak and for me specifically, it was really nice to kind of see the broad platform usage and also just at, at scale, how we were going to solve problems that started in one place and potentially ended in another place. That was really like the important thing for us. And I think it worked because you really want to ensure that like the highest use features have some continuity between them, um, that you're using similar language, right? Just things like that. And um, it makes it really hard when you have different people owning different parts of your product. I'm with yeah. you completely. Just I don't think a lot of companies do it. So I think the fact that Kayak did it and you did all of it, I think it makes a ton of sense. It's probably it probably helped with having the seamless experience. The hardest thing about that is you're trying to manage then features across multiple multiple platforms. It can be easy. Can be easy. Development schedules are different on all of them, and so different developer teams, different. Absolutely. So it becomes a little hard for the the product manager, I guess, or if you're kind of managing all of that, but. I loved it. And, and we had amazing developers there, so it was easy enough. <laughs> and then the other thing you mentioned earlier was about like, you know, Kayak was your first experience into consumer, but then you talked a lot about like how fast everything was moving. What are some pros and cons of moving at light speed yeah, <laughs> when no. joining a company that moves at light speed? I think every company wants to say they move at lightning speed. I think Kayak for sure still at the companies I've been at today still moved at the fastest pace um, in terms of churning out tests, in terms of pivoting and changing and reacting. I think the travel space is really competitive. It's very price driven. So you have to be able to react in that regard. Sometimes you're reacting to competitors and not reacting to your user. And so I think that's something that's, that, that there's a pitfall there, right? You can move fast, you can kind of try to win, but sometimes it ends up happening when you're moving so fast, you lose track of the bigger picture. And so you might end up compromising for short-term wins versus long-term. And so I think we saw some of that, you know, happen. You, you respond, you react to it, and you re correct course, for example. I think there's a lot of benefits to it as well, right? You really tune your muscle at what um, hypotheses work and don't work. You can learn really fast um, and then you can scale out really fast. When something does work, you can like push it out to, for example, Kayak, we had flights and hotels and cars and many other verticals that you can then when scale something with. Works. When something works, <laughs> it works cool. and you push it out really fast. So I think, yeah, I mean, the, the pitfall then again is like, if you move too fast, you might miss things. You might miss things. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've worked with, basically we've talked about education, we talked about travel, and then you worked in music, and now you work in entertainment. What are things that you think are the same for users that people can maybe use in their job, even if they're in different demographic? And what are some things that are specific to those particular demographic? Generally speaking, I think when when I'm looking at the companies that I've worked for, they're kind of all have like a thread of entertainment, right? Kind of weaved into them. So like music or streaming, streaming video, or even travel for that for that matter. The people who are like looking at if you're an early adopter or if you're kind of coming in later, later in the game from respect to like my last two um, experiences versus kayak is we're really looking at where these people are coming to us and how often they're coming to us. Um, somebody who's coming on kayak might come once every six months. You know, a Spotify user might come every single day and a Netflix user might come once a week or something of that nature. And so really, I think the really big difference when I'm looking at who is my customer and what am I trying to do? Like, what's my business goal? What's my, what's the product goal is 
where are they coming from and how are they coming to me? And then how can I respond or react or like, and I kind of like usher them down this journey with me so that when they do come to come to me, whether it's once every six months or every day, that every time they're coming back to our service, that we're fulfilling that need that they come for in a way that is delighting them and exciting them to get them to slowly start to come back more often, right? Everyone wants, wants their user to come and hang out with them essentially, right? Every day. That's, that's, it's, we're a business, you know, we're, we're a business, we're trading some kind of like benefit to our customer. And I think that we really have to be able to empathize and really understand what that customer goal is. I think that's the biggest way, right? You, you want to grow something, well, figure out what the user wants and then figure out how you either are or are not satisfying that. And then the nuances come into the demographics play, right? Is where are they coming? How are they coming? How often What's their level of understanding with that particular thing? I, I think about even like our, our Spotify users, for example, the early adopters knew what Spotify was. People who we are trying to basically get now are, you know, they were the folks who were listening to radio, you know, one hour a day on their commute. Yeah. They wanted news. They wanted some music. They wanted to know the weather. Well, Spotify didn't necessarily solve that problem. And so I think when you think about then how do you meet that demographic, you need to think about, well, what innovations can we build on our platform to actually meet those user needs versus trying to get that user to change for you? Getting users to change is probably one of the hardest yes, things. Not going to happen. Very long, <laughs> not going to happen. Very, very long time and usually multiple failed companies before. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Or a lot of money. You're like market the crap out of your product and then... Even then, I think it's so hard. It's you know, now you're on Netflix, maybe tell the audience a little bit about what you're doing on Netflix today and what are your priorities and yes. challenges. Well, so I am now at Netflix. I'm, I run product innovation for our kids and family kind of segment or, or vertical. Um, we're really focused on becoming like the next best place for kids to enjoy and consume content and for them to also have a safe space and a safe area for which from which to do so, right? I think when I think about who our customers are. It's not just the kid. It's not just the person who wants to come on and watch you know, their favorite show. It's also their parent who wants to ensure that what are they watching? Is it safe? Is it, you know, is it adding value to my child's life, et cetera? How do I have insights into what they're doing on online? And so that's really what my focus really is on is like, how do I balance two user groups um, within the same area? And then with even within kids, you know, you have somebody, a kid who could be like, three or four to somebody who can be 12. Those are very different problems and, and solutions to what they want to do on Netflix. Three-year-old is probably has a parent next to him. It's wow. So how do you, how do you think about that? How do you even do user testing for such a varied group of users? Really, it comes down to when I'm thinking about what are some opportunities in the area? It's I identify, okay, based off of like user behavior that we see or based off of consumer insights research, we kind of understand and start to kind of like segment down. So we're not looking at kids of all ages. I might be looking at kids of a certain age range, for example. So like younger kids, older kids, or older kids and preteens, for example. And then really when I'm thinking about solutions to whatever problem we are want to solve for the day, right? Um, it's really about how then do I tailor a solution to a targeted age range and then get feedback from them and for, from them and their parents or whomever it might be to actually see whether we're, we're solving in the right way or what things we as adults who are building for kids might have overlooked. 
Um, because if I try to take a solution to a broad range of, of kids, I'm going to get a bunch of different pieces of insight and feedback and information that won't be necessarily useful to what targeted goal I'm trying to solve. So I think when when I think about what I do, it's in this space specifically, I have to then start to kind of segment down even further and think about even smaller segments within the kids and family space. Yeah, because you think about, yeah, like you said, a kid who's three might not be able to use a remote. They might not get that construct and they might be really great at voice, right? Versus a kid who might be like, eight who kind of knows exactly what they want. They know the characters they want, but you know, they're fickle because tomorrow they're going to want something new. And so how do you basically figure all these things out? Well, again, it's again, by having isolated, really clear hypotheses. Do you think voice, you know, this is something that I've always, it feels like I was talking to someone about voice and they were saying the kids now are using voice and like voice will become bigger when they grow up. Do you do you see trends like that in the market? 100%. I mean, I think even... We I, can get used to voice, but the next generation cannot, voice will be... Yeah, I mean, I remember I was home a few years ago for Christmas and I had some little, like my niece, and I had my laptop, I was doing some work and she went up and started like touching the screen and i was just like what are you doing <laughs> she's like well it's like it's a broken i'm like these are keys right here on the keyboard <laughs> do you amazing. understand what this is and you see you can put a, a smartphone in front of a 2 year old and they know you know where to go so voice is something that's so natural for kids right using a remote control and a keyboard is not natural for kids but asking for something like asking questions is so normal so so interesting. You'll see little kids asking Alexa to do all kinds of things, including like <laughs> buy them toys on Amazon. <laughs> so yeah, I think voices, we've been saying this for a long time, voice is the next frontier, you know, like hashtag, but it's, it really will become that once we, we get into a position or a place where we start to have more kids starting to be teenagers kind of- and young adults. Yeah. I, I, I think it's so hard to change the user behavior. So now what's happening is you build on these things and there's a new generation that. Yeah. And the problem is like we or the generation who didn't grow up with voice are the ones building it. So we oftentimes are like, <laughs> well, it's not really that important. Right. But I, yeah, that's why I think empathy is super important when you're trying to grow a business, trying to grow a product, trying to build features. It's make sure you're building it for the right reason and that they are actually satisfying user needs or, you, or that they're addressing user behavior. And as you think about, I mean, you, you probably, Netflix is such a global brand. Uh, do you see any patterns as you think about streaming and as you look at like users across different, the globe, anything interesting that you could share with the users? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things, and it kind of goes back to something I said earlier, is understanding where your, where your audience is and how they're coming to you. I think India just actually published a report recently this year, and maybe Hotstar did as well, about how 97% of their traffic or 90% of the traffic, some 90s number, was coming through mobile. Yeah, that makes sense. They, like, Similarly in, in LATAM, Brazil, mostly just... mobile, right? And so if you're building your, your features, your products primarily on, on a web-based, in a web-based approach, you're not going to reach your customer where they are. You know, and so that really is like one of the things that I think as we look outwards and we're trying to understand like what does a global audience want? It's not really about what does the global audience want because it's so broad. You have to figure out like regionally, you know, what languages are spoken. India has several main languages. There is like no national language, right? So it's really trying to understand what are like the nuances that are really driving that culture forward. If you look at like a place like Brazil, social media and discounts and deals, like that's where they drive. And so you actually see, I remember uh, when I was at Kayak, we had 
our Brazil like social media channels like outpaced our like national channel. And so it's just things like that where you need to find out how are people consuming information and responding and then go where they are. Right? Put yourself put yourself yeah. kind of in that same flow and in that pathway. I remember I went to Brazil this year and I met this guy and he built this social commerce app that I don't think would ever work in the US and he used like branch for it and he was so excited about it and I was like oh my god this would never work in the US but he was <laughs> growing like crazy yeah. the only way you can buy is if you find four friends and all five of you decide and then you can get the deal and it was spreading like wildfire it's just like so interesting yeah doing it all like social plus deals like but yeah in all in one <laughs> I love it uh, and I mean I loved it because he used branch to track all of it but I was like he was a really funny guy as you think about people trying to get into product, you've obviously had an interesting career path. What advice do you have? I think product in some ways seems to be one of the hardest like jobs to break into. Even when I think about our branch product managers, they all like worked at branch for two years before becoming <laughs> like, how, what's your advice in, in, for the product path? You've probably also seen other people come into product. I have a few pieces of advice, right? So I think if you're really interested in becoming a product manager, like know why. Right. So like sometimes people like they say like, oh, I just want to be a product manager, but they have like no real story as to why that drives them. If you're like inherently a tinker, a problem solver, you are just asking a ton of questions. I think product probably is a good route to explore. To break into it, I would always just suggest is like, is there like an an ancillary side role? Like you said here at at branch, people like might work in other departments or divisions to like really understand your customer base. We're a very heavy technical product, which is I think very different than like a consumer product. Role. Yeah. But if you have experience either in an industry, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a product manager, but if you have heavy experience, that's how I got my my role, right? I was a teacher. And so they're like, hey, come to this education company where you have a lot of like interesting insider knowledge essentially with what it feels like to be a teacher, what it feels like to be a student. I think that helps kind of like get your foot into the door with and you can kind of bring some level of understanding of the industry that you want to break that, you know, that you're going into. I think then how to become a great product manager. So let's say you've kind of broken into one, um, an associate PM role, something where you're kind of like a project manager role, like where you're kind of around the same type of work, but you're not necessarily having to lead it on your own. Cause that's, that's the key thing, right? Is like, if you've never done product, you've never kind of worked cross-functionally then with design and engineering and customer service and research. And like, those are skills that you have to build up over time. So getting in any of those fields essentially could help. But I also think that really it's about being able to ensure that when you are in a role or you're given the opportunity is like really have the right, ask the right questions and like, then when you're coming up with solutions with your team, it's really about driving towards a business metric that is actually testable. Sometimes you fall into this habit of having a kind of like a shaky hypothesis mm-hmm. with shaky metrics or things you're trying to solve. And so then you end up putting forth really bad tests yeah. that don't ever help you learn. And so you'll never really up-level your yeah. skills as a PM or really make an impact on the business. Yeah. And talk to as many people in the field that you're in that, you know, that you want to, if you want to break into a product role, talk to them, understand kind of what their pathway was, because everyone's going to have a slightly different, unique pathway into product. I think now they actually teach courses in product management. They so do, they do, but that wasn't the case. That wasn't the now. case. That wasn't the case before. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be a product manager and I don't think I was very good at it. <laughs> so I moved away from product. So I think for me, it's fascinating to hear people's stories and also what makes a good product manager. I think you are, you're completely right. 
Any last advice for the audience when they think about growth, the next move in their career, any like wisdom that you'd like to impart? Honestly, I think really at the end of the day, the job is to grow your audience and help grow your company, make an impact. And I think sometimes we think that impact comes from like really big innovations that are going to take a really long time. I think I said that earlier, but it doesn't always have to be like that. You can like dig deeper to try to really empathize with your user. Make sure that you're talking, speaking their language, right? I think one of my very first tests um, at Kayak was literally changing the text on a button. And it was the main button that drove the primary, it was the revenue driver button, the click, that's what we needed. And it used to say select, right? The button was said select for the longest time. And it was really these things where it's like, well, if you want people to click that button, but select is a really like strong word, right? If I click it, I might like not be able to go back. And so we changed it to say view deal, just because, hey, deal's a deal and you're just viewing something. You're not you're not making the selection yet, right? You're not, you haven't finalized anything. And that was like a 10%, you know, increase in in clicks for that button, which like equated to like That's revenue amazing. gains. So I think that like my my biggest piece of advice is like look for things that seem obvious that no one's talking about. Incremental impact. Incremental impact. It doesn't ha- always have to be big, but like if you have enough incremental impact and you're driving towards one big change, at least you're justifying why you're spending a lot of time on one big change and you're incrementally making the product better over time. And so I think for me, really, that's my biggest takeaway for like early in my career to now is like always have like some projects that are little that can be moved quickly that you can always get learnings from. You want to always be learning whether right or wrong and then have something pretty big and meaty that you're also working towards, right? Have a big goal, but don't forget those to set those small goals, to set those small those small pieces of learnings that you want to get along the way. That's amazing. I love that as an ending, incremental impact and the fact that changing the text on a button can drive a ton of <laughs> yeah. change for your company. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, how can the audience find you if they want to follow you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Michelle Parsons, essentially. Michelle Parsons on LinkedIn. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really great I having you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing. <laughs>